All right, well, good morning, all, this gray, cold fall morning. Um, hopefully, we'll get in the Word and get our minds in gear. I know I'm speaking to myself here. Um, these are the kind of mornings where you just kind of want to snuggle and, you know, sleep a little longer. But anyway, uh, the Lord has given us this time together to get into His Word. And I'll tell you, um, I chose to get back into 1 Peter. And I'm glad I did because it just reinvigorates me, reminds me of what we're to be about as believers, what the Lord has done for us, what He calls us to. And so we have a great opportunity this morning to look into the Scriptures and just be reminded of these things. Um, Dave was talking about during the, or before the, the music, just how important it is to stay in the Word. And man, you can't overstate that. Um, you really cannot overstate how important it is to stay in the Scriptures. I hope you're, you're staying in the Scriptures on a regular basis. Um, as Moses says, it is no idle word for you. It is your life. And we have to believe that. We have to live that. We have to understand that it's not just something we do. It's actually the means by which we live. It's the means by which we survive. It's the means by which we stay renewed. And if you're not staying in the Word, something else will, will end up renewing you. Something else will end up taking the place in your minds and hearts. Um, and there's lots of things that want to do that. You know, This is the season of college football. And uh, you know, it's very easy if you're a sports fan to let uh, this season completely consume you. And, um, and, or perhaps it's you know, whatever else it is for you. But what I know very, sure, very clearly and very sure for my own life is that it is a fight to stay in this book. But as I do, it actually doesn't take very long uh, looking at the scriptures, looking at the truth found in this book. It doesn't take very long for me to just remember the glory in it and, and just be remiss at, at perhaps how long it's taken me to get back in it sometimes. And, and so that's shame on me, shame on us for not doing it like we ought to. But Brethren, the Lord has given us His Word to, to be bread, to be a sword, to, to be that which renews us, so we have to stay in it. And, um, yeah, so many reasons, but this isn't a sermon on, on that. Um, let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll look here at the first five verses, and we'll zero in on verse 3. So 1 Peter 4, and actually before we start, why don't I... Why don't I pray for us? Oh, Father, there is no question that we, we are so desperate for your Spirit's help. Just thinking of the prophets that appeal to you, that cry out to you for you to come down. Lord Jesus, we need you to send your Spirit we need you to come down. We need you to wake us up. We need you to remind us and refresh us and renew us, convict us um, just of this great truth that we believe and know, um, this great truth that is reality. It's, um, it's the most glorious news there is. Um, Lord Jesus, we, we just pray you would be our teacher. We pray that this work would be effective in our hearts. We pray that... Um, Lord, we would get a, another uh, just fresh sense of what you're calling us to avoid. Lord, as this passage does deal with that, those things that we are to avoid. Um, and Lord, not just so that we can be um, people who don't do this and don't do that. 
but rather people that express to the world that we are changed. We are different. We are not who we once were. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Those in here in this room who know that to be true, Lord, we, um, I just pray you would encourage them to remind them where they've come from, where you've brought them, and that they would draw strength from that to remember that the God who saved them, the God who changed them, is the God that continues to keep them and can renew them day by day. And um, so, Lord, just be with us. Be with me. Give me clarity of mind. Give my brethren ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty, so 1 Peter 4, and before I even read the text, I want to give you just a short description of what this text is actually saying. Peter's, one of Peter's primary points in chapter 4, 1 through 5, is that for Christians, the life of self-indulgence, he calls it here the flesh, the life of self-indulgence is over. I'm not saying that the life of joy is over, right? But the life of self-indulgence is over. We no longer live according to the lust of the flesh, Peter says. He's also saying here that all Christians have a former life at some level. A former manner of life, a former life that expressed itself in sin and self-indulgence. And yet their new life is characterized by following Christ and not the world. And as Peter has said, because you're transformed, this will bring conflict and tension among those whom you used to hang with. This tension is described by our modern term, peer pressure. Think about that. Kids, your parents are talking to you about peer pressure. You know, at some level anyway. Perhaps it's kids in the neighborhood or um, perhaps it's your own siblings. But it's peer pressure. It's, it's the pressure to conform to patterns that are forbidden by God. You know, that's, that's what Peter is getting at here. There's a pressure. There's a pressure in the world to conform to the world. It wants to squeeze you into its mold. It wants you to love what it loves. It wants you to think how it thinks. It wants you to take on its worries and anxieties. It wants wants you to take on its hopes and its dreams. There's this pressure. And Peter says, for you, that day is over. You You don't live for the lusts of the flesh anymore. The lusts of men, he says. Peter's already told us that we'll suffer in the Christian life throughout the letter. And now he sort of breaks it down in our chapter here, in these these verses here, even clearer, especially in verse 3 that we'll be looking at, listing out old desires and patterns that we must avoid. And then he goes on to tell us that as we avoid them, (laughs) we'll actually be maligned for that. So, so much for the Christianity that says, when you come to Jesus... It just, things just all come together in terms of relationships in this world. In many ways, they are torn apart. And the pressure actually intensifies. Um, I recently preached a memorial service for a, I guess he was like a third cousin, and he died of an overdose. They found him dead in his apartment um, in California. 
and he'd been dead for a couple of days before they found him. It's really incredibly sad. And my family members had asked me to lead the memorial service, and over and over they were telling me to, um, Chris, we, we really want you to, to, to lead it, but we, we want it to be positive. We want it to be uplifting, encouraging words. So there's the pressure. Oh, there's the pressure. The pressure that comes with saying some things, but not saying everything. Not saying, perhaps, what needs to be said. And so it actually comes with a weight. And I wish I could say that, oh, I just sloughed it off and I just went up there bold as a lion. And maybe there was some of that, I hope, maybe. But the pressure was there all the way up until I got up and opened my mouth. And yet the Lord kept me and I ended up not feeling well actually that day and ended up pretty much reading through it. But ended up saying how important the gospel really is, that this time of death reminds us that, that life is short and that we need to be thinking not only about the preciousness of life in this world, but the reality of life in the next. And so we just, I just talked about the reality of the gospel and how it, Paul tells Timothy that, it, that it, it reveals that Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. That's a wonderful text for a funeral. And just talking about that reality that Jesus abolished death and that that's what these people needed to hear. And I have a feeling they didn't love it because I didn't get any feedback. Um, But that's to be expected. And Peter wants you to know that. Peter wants you to know that a transformed life, a life that's lived in fidelity to Jesus, will yield in perhaps alienation, ostracism, silence, or straight out malice. And that's what will happen. Now, they could have all loved it and just not told me. I don't know. Um, but my point is, is that I deal with the pressures just like you do. And, um, and that's to be expected. But let me go ahead and read this, this section for us. And then we'll zero in on, on verse 3. Chapter 4, 1 through 5. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with this same mind, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, and carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We're going to zero in here on verse 3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now Peter comes at us, where a lot of us are used to Paul, you know, Paul very linear, you can pretty much track with him. Peter comes at us with very different ways to exhort us, very different ways. The language, I mean, there are certain parts in Peter that are actually just very challenging to interpret. Um, but, but he comes at us exhorting us to live a life not according to the flesh, but for the will of God in sort of a strange way. Here's what he says. 
The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. It's sort of a strange exhortation. Peter's saying, you know, don't live according to the flesh anymore because you've already done all that. You've done enough of that. Now, of course, Peter's not saying that everyone needs to experience living for yourself and sin for a season until you reach your fill, like sowing, you know, your, your oats or what's the saying, whatever it is, your wild oats or whatever that saying is. You know, you, you reach your fill and then you can move on and serve the Lord or something like that. That's what I used to think as a, as a non-Christian, right? As a non-Christian, you're thinking, oh, I'll serve the Lord later, you know? When I'm not able to have fun anymore, then I'll do that. But, but Peter's point is not, you know, everyone should have their fill of sin and then at some point start to follow the Lord. That's not his point. His point is, is that there should be no more room in your life for living like the world. That's his point. It, you, you've had enough of it. At every level, if you're now a Christian, whether you're five or whether you're, you know, 85, the reality is you have some former way of life, some way of thinking like the world. And whatever you experienced in that time frame before you knew Christ, that's enough. Don't think, Peter's saying here, that you are missing out on anything in living for Jesus. You're not missing out on a thing. The greener grass syndrome, it's there, isn't it? You see the way the world just has such a blast, having such a good time, living it up. Those of us who are in Christ and who have discernment, we know what's really underneath the surface. We really know know what goes on behind the scenes. And so on on good days and maybe normally we don't fall prey to that lie, but there are times where you're like, man, it just, like like Asaph, you know, it's just like, gosh, I, I just struggle every day. And they just don't seem to have a care. And Peter wants to say, look, you're not missing out on anything. And living for Jesus There's nothing to gain by living like the world. Do we believe that? Are you worn down by fighting that? It's good that you're fighting. But be encouraged that there's nothing that you're missing out on. Many people think that coming to Christ means no more fun. (laughs) No more laughter, no more good times. And I would certainly want to say that coming to Jesus is not like, you know, going to the fair (laughs) or Dollywood. But it is a fullness of joy and satisfaction for the soul that nothing under the sun can give. As Paul says in Romans 1, and I I don't know if you pick this up when you read Romans 1, but it's, in some sense, is sort of pathetic the way Paul describes the life of the wicked. I'm not saying the way he writes it is pathetic. I'm saying their pursuits are pathetic. And he describes it and he says that they serve the form of corruptible man. And they exchange the glory of an incorruptible God. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the fleeting, transient corruption of men or the incorruption and the glory of an all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, eternal, self-sufficient God. 
It's a fullness of joy. The joys and the depth of fulfillment is not even to be compared. One of my favorite quotes from church history, from Augustine, the one that I latched on early in my Christian life when he was describing his conversion. Just listen to how he puts it. He says, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Let me read that again. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Now he speaks to the Lord. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy, the supreme joy. You drove them from me and took their place. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. What do you get when you leave the world? Well, only the living God. Only an incorruptible, eternal, life-giving fountain of living waters. That's all. And Peter wants to say, look, don't think you're missing out. The time has already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Don't get duped into thinking you're missing out. It's a question though, isn't it? Do we... Do you, and you have to ask yourself this question, do you look back with fondness? Do you look back? Do you look back and you're like, man, it just was better then. Do you pursue that? Do you, are you so weary of life and the mundane that you seek past flames or past illicit pursuits. That's why Facebook can be so dangerous. A stay-at-home mom can be idle and tired of dealing with kids and start to look back. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? Well, she was being saved from absolute destruction And she looked back at Sodom with fondness and God destroyed her. Turned into a pillar of salt. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Don't look back in fondness over your former life, brethren. God judged Lot's wife with just one look. Just one look of fondness is a betrayal of the God who saved you. Think of that. Do you think that that's a little overkill by God? She just looked back, Lord. But he gives us these pictures, doesn't he? He gives us these pictures to let us know how heinous, how treacherous it is, just one look. Oh, we just, we just do not see God rightly. We don't see the treasure that he is. You know why? It's because we don't get in his word. We're so enamored and fixated with other things. We think that his word really is not going to give us much. We forget him. We don't fight for him. We don't seek his face continually as the psalmist tells us to. We forget. And we're enamored. We're like the Israelites, you know. Oh man, it was better in Egypt. You know. (laughs) Back then, gosh, at least we ate meat. Out here we're wasting away. And you know what they forgot? That they had God. 
Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten what God, who, who, who it is that has saved you? Who it is that you can call to? Who it is that, that has forgiven you? Who has sent His Son to take your place? Have you forgotten? How many of you have forgotten? It's easy, isn't it, when, when life is hard and mundane and dry to look to anything else other than the Scriptures. Right? I just cannot emphasize it enough. We have the privilege of having this book before us. You know, 12, 13 centuries of, of uh, history of the church, 12 or 13 centuries, they did not have this privilege. Not like we do. We have an amazing access to the Scriptures. But brethren, remember Lot's wife. Remember the children of Israel. Praise God for his mercy that we are not treated like Lot's wife because, you know, we're we're made of the same stuff. But looking back or glorying in the world, that time is over is, is Peter's point. But what in particular does Peter have in mind here that we're, missing, that we're not missing out on? What in particular is, are the, the, the things that Peter says, that all that's, all that's done, you've had enough of that? Well, he says it here, carrying out the desire of the Gentiles. As time passes sufficient for you to carry out the desire of the Gentiles. Implicit in Peter's message here is that Becoming a Christian means new desires and new actions, new pursuits. God is not against desire at all. God's desire is from God. He's against desiring things out of proportion or desiring forbidden things or transgressions, but he's very much for desire and zeal. And he wants the desires we have to be shaped by the gospel, shaped by the new creation we become in Christ. But we have new desires, desires to please the Lord. This is who we are. If that hasn't happened to you, then you don't know what I'm talking about right now. Again, you're just here. You're just here in attendance. And you're not riveted, or not because I'm a great speaker, but by the truth. But if you have been changed and you have been transformed, you know this to be true for you. When you became a Christian, your wants changed. Your pursuits, your goals, your dreams changed. And he says that you don't want to carry out the desire of the Gentiles anymore or the time is enough for you to carry out the desire of the Gentiles. There's desire, it's this this internal strong passion that elicits and yields itself in actions. Peter's saying here, we have new power to not carry out the world's desires. The time of being a slave to sin is over, is his point. The time of being a slave to sin is over. He says this earlier, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men. Do you believe that that can be you? 
Peter has high expectations for Christians. Normal from God's perspective, or, or I should say reasonable from God's perspective, given the fact that it's the Holy Spirit who lives in you. But no longer are we slaves of sin. We have new desires, new wants, new perspectives. I've probably, I've probably given this illustration before, or talked about it before, but I remember after I became a Christian, the girl that I dated for about a year before I became a Christian, um, she was kind of my idol, but after a few months of becoming a Christian, she still would visit me, and um, even though we had broken up, but I wanted her to know the Lord. I, I still kept in touch with her. I still cared for her, but not like I used to. And I remember that there was one time in specific she came to my parents' house, and I was, I was probably three months old as a believer, something like that. And I looked over at her, and the Lord just overwhelmed me with grief for her. You know, I knew her very well, and I knew what she was all about. And I just looked over her at grief, and I just began to just, just weep. We were sitting there watching some movie or something. And she was sitting over the couch, was sitting in a chair. I looked over, I just started weeping. I just started just... And she noticed that I was, and she came over thinking that I was missing her. That I wanted to be back with her. That I was just, you know, just I couldn't hold it anymore. I was going to tell her that. So she came over in front of me and sat down on the ottoman in front of me and... And she hugged me, and at this point I still hadn't said anything. And she kind of pulled away and wanted to know what I had to say. And I told her, I just said, she was kind of waiting, and I just said, I know what you're looking for, and I found him. And she was like, oh. And she gets up and she storms away, all flustered. She thought I was upset because I missed her. What she didn't realize is that I no longer was an idolater. She was no longer my high place. She was no longer my God. I serve the living and true God now. And all that she longed for in me, I found him. (laughs) And I wanted her to know him because I had new desires. It is the absolute almighty sovereign power of God that can break a man's love for a woman like that or lust for a woman like that, and replace that with himself. And people can't understand that. You know, it's very strange. And it was strange to her. But this, just, this passage just reminded me of that, these new desires that I have. Well, what are these desires that we do not carry out? Well, he lists them here. He says, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, Drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So let's look at these. I'll try to keep it as PG as possible, but you can already tell, you know. You can already tell it's pretty, it's pretty explicit. And you know, the reality is it is explicit, isn't it? We are that way before we're in Christ we are that way. We've all probably done things when no one is looking in these realms that are absolute, would absolutely just terrify us to be shown publicly. Right? 
And Peter gets pretty graphic. Sensuality, carousing, drunkenness, lusts, drinking parties, all these things. This is the reality of human beings before they know the Lord. Sensuality. The term itself is actually a little hard to define. Its use is only it's found primarily in lists in the New Testament. There's several lists. Jesus gives lists where he, he, he lists that off. Paul does. It's usually in context of sexual immorality, sexual deviation. Peter uses the term in 2 Peter 2.7. Peter says, and if he, that is God, if God rescued righteous Lot, remember Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, if, if God rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then God knows how to rescue the righteous. And that's sort of the point of the passage. But here he says that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. So consider these unprincipled men. I mean, if you go back and reread the passage in Genesis 19, you can see what he means by unprincipled. We're talking a vileness that's very hard to fathom. Right? There were the, the men, the angels there that came and visited him. They were sort of new on the block. And these men in Sodom knew that they were here in the town. And they sought Lot and his residence out to find these men because they wanted them for their own vile purposes. And we kind of understand what all that means. We're talking about a vile display of homosexuality. I mean, in a sense, gang rape, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. That's what we're talking about. They were beating, they wanted to beat the door down. In some cultures, they understand this very well. All you have to do is, again, just research for two seconds what's gone on with Hamas and what they're doing to people and women and children. Driven certainly by power, but also there's lusts involved and all kinds of things. But it's these illicit sexual desires that yield themselves in, in horrible things. And Peter's point is, no more acting that out. You guys are done with anything that, that, that reeks of that. Anything that hints of that. You are done with sensuality. Anything that deviates from God's design of marriage is, is, is forbidden, Peter says. I mean, in our culture, the deviance from God's design of marriage is pervasive, right? It's whether it's the ideologies and practice of LGBTQ, or whether it's the nice couple living together and they refuse to get married. Um, you know, you always wonder, like, why do you live together? I mean, I have a family member who has been living with a guy for like 20 years, and they just won't get married. He won't marry her. Um, they have a kid together and have a house together, and they will not get married. I think, I think the reason is, is, is because, it's like the proverb says, you know, the adulterous woman says, stolen water is sweet. You know, you get married, it takes the sweetness out of it. You know, there's a certain sweetness to sin. I think that's part of it. But Peter says, these are the, these are the former acts we are to be done with. And I thought about this. Can you find some encouragement here? 
Do you recall when you were in immoral relationships and God freed you from that? Take courage from that. That's the power of God in your life. Be thankful for that. The world can't get free from that kind of stuff. They might leave one just to go into another one, right? But for believers, we were set free from that. That's incredibly encouraging. So be done with sensuality, these, these activities and these actions of sexual immorality. Lusts is the next one that Peter mentions. Oh, I dealt with this term extensively back in verse 2, but suffice it to say, whereas sensuality may have more of a, the actual practice of immorality, this term describes the fountain of the practice of immorality itself. This is that the internal desire that when met by opportunity results in sensuality or can be murders, lying, etc. I mean, lust here, it's epithemia, it's the idea of just strong passion. Strong passion for forbidden things. Perhaps it's covetousness, perhaps it's a woman not your wife, perhaps it's a man not your husband, whatever it is. Lusts. Strong desire. Peter says you are not driven by this. You are not driven by this anymore. These things should not characterize you. You should be able to say no. Christians have self-control. Right? By the Holy Spirit, we have self-control. We can say no to self and flesh. There is no excuse there. But Peter says, you, you're done with that. You're done with living according to that. And then drunkenness. I'm going to spend a, a minute on this. Drunkenness, he says. He actually, I mean, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties are almost all a cluster, and they're all sort of together and overlap some. Drunkenness. The term itself, it's made, of the, it's made up of the two terms, one for wine and one for babbling. Or bubbling. It's, it's interesting. It's the idea that one has drank enough wine that now they just babble foolish and moronic things. That's the idea. The, the display of drunkenness. Drunkenness. It's that state of affairs where you are just now foolish. This might help you understand what being drunk is in the Bible. It's not just passing out on the floor, right? It's actually just a lack of sobriety due to having drunk alcohol going off into foolish babbling. And that's what it is. This is why in the Proverbs, wine is said to be a mocker. Wine is a mocker. When someone has too much wine, everything becomes a joke. Nothing, taking, nothing is taken seriously anymore. You know, there are really two, things, two descriptions in the, new, in the scriptures with alcohol. You have wine and then you have strong drink. But when you're drinking wine and you, you, you drink too much, you end up becoming a mocker. There are a couple times in the scripture where wine is seen as a good thing, Psalm 104, and even a helpful aid in the pastorals with Paul's instruction to Timothy as he had his frequent ailments. He said, take a little wine for your stomach. But the scriptures over and over warn against the negative and deadly impact of alcohol. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. 
Again, as I said, Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. And whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Here, wine is personified as a mocker, one who makes fun and makes light of everything serious. And strong drink is personified as a, a brawler, uh, personified as it makes someone pugilistic or quarrelsome, ready to fight. And it's not wise. This is not wise to give yourself to these things. It's foolish. It makes things worse. You, you drink because you think it'll make all things better. It makes things worse. Proverbs 31, 4 through 5. Lemuel's mother, instructing him, says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Lots could be said about this text. But this one is helpful. This tells you both why and what happens when one gives themselves to alcohol. This is in the context of kings and rulers. Kings and rulers are those with immense responsibility. And Lemuel's mom here is telling him, like, listen, you have immense responsibility. You can be tempted to run to wine and strong drink like the other kings. Don't do it. Why? Because you're going to forget. You're going to forget your responsibilities. You are vested with responsibility. You are in the position you are for others. And wine will numb you to those responsibilities. It will make you forget. And this is what happened, right? This is what happens in the world. The pressures of life drive people to this escape. That's what it is. It's an escape. You know, in the Revelation, I was debating about going there this morning, but the harlot who rides upon the beast, what does she do? She gives to the kings of the earth to, the, to drink of the wine of her immorality. And what does wine do? It's, in a, it's an anesthetic, right? It, it numbs you. You drink it, you forget what's real. You forget. I'm not sure if you remember this, but at the beginning of the crucifixion, Jesus was offered wine. And he refused it. Perhaps he had Proverbs 31 in mind. It is not for kings to drink wine. Not when he's doing such an amazing work. The Lord Jesus refused it. He didn't take the anesthetic. He didn't want that dulling of his senses accomplishing this momentous work for the afflicted. Jesus was a true king. This was the pinnacle of looking out for the afflicted. But Lemuel's mother has some things to say to us, right? I mean, we all have responsibilities in life. They are hard. Children are a challenge. We love them, but in order to raise them right, it's, it's hard, it's a war, it can be anyway. Pressures at work, pressures of extended family. You can feel like you're just stuck. And you want some feeling back, right? You want some joy back. And so what do you do? Well, let's drink. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. That's where, that's where we should go. 
And it probably starts out relatively small and harmless, right? You justify it by Psalm 104. Hey, wine is given to make the king's heart glad. Right? Make man's face glad, or however it words it there. And I'm not saying that a drink is wrong, but you know what I'm saying. It all starts there, and if you have the wrong perspective of it, if it's not just a garnish in your life, it will take the place of the Spirit of God. It will. You, often you hear of it, and I guess maybe it's just lately I've just heard of it, just hearing of so many moms surviving life and the pressures of life by turning to wine. Um, listen to Jesus, Luke 21. He's very aware of this tendency. He says this, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Talking about the second coming. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Pray. You think you don't have a, a recourse in your struggle against the difficulties of life. Do you find yourself resorting to the Lord? Do you find yourself pursuing your refuge in Christ? Do you find yourself looking for answers in His Word? Do you find yourself going and calling on the people of God to speak truth to you? Do you find yourself seeking Him? Or do you find yourself taking matters into your own hands and numbing yourself with alcohol? Jesus says that alcohol, drunkenness, far from bringing freedom and lightening the load, can weigh you down. How? Because you become dependent on it to function. And that's not good because then it makes you forget reality. And that's not good because what's the most significant of all realities? <laughs> the second coming of Christ. Be alert that that day not come upon you like a trap. And you're like, oh. and you're caught. Sometimes I'm in people's homes because I work in a lot of different areas mainly in residential construction, and I'm in people's homes a lot, and, and I see pictures of them and their spouses, and, and it's crazy how often I see pictures of the years with their spouses with a drink in their hand. Just all the time. Now again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a drink, but it's crazy to me how I perceive so many people, so many marriages, so many relationships are held together by alcohol. Matter of fact, I think in some ways a lot of people's intimate life, if they are intimate at all in marriage, it happens because of alcohol. It's the only way they can bring themselves to be intimate with each other. And brethren, this is just so sad. And this ought not be with the saints. Drunkenness. Peter said, that's, your, that's worldly. That's, the, that's a worldly life. If that's what you need... To, to tolerate or to be intimate with your spouse, you've got a problem. You've got a big problem. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine. That's an imperative. But be filled by the Spirit. These two fillings are mutually exclusive. Alcohol, excessive alcohol, brings a forgetting of reality and a lowering of morals, 
Being filled with the Spirit brings clear thinking about reality and eternity and a life lived by love and truth. Spirit brings strength. Alcohol brings weakness. So how do you relate to alcohol? Brethren at New Covenant, how do you relate to it? Are you dependent on it? Is it something you have to have? Is it a garnish in your life? Okay. But is it a refuge? Is it an escape? Are you very aware of that? This lifestyle will bring continued sorrow to you. And be clear, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, that drunkards don't inherit the kingdom of God. It's no small matter. Drunkenness. There's, many, there's a lot more we could say about that, but let me move on. So drunkenness, so sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing. Carousing, it's the word kamos. It's like a letting loose is the idea. Letting loose. You know, sort of letting your moral inhibitions relax a little bit. Strong's had a very interesting description of it, and I I copied and pasted it because I I should read it because it was interesting. Strong says this, Carousing here is a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus, which is the goddess or the god of wine, Dionysius is the the other word synonymous with Bacchus. But they march in the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity and they sing and play before the houses of their male and female friends. Hence used generally of feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. Makes me think of downtown life, doesn't it? Makes me think of downtown life at night or victory parties in university towns and pubs after college football teams win. That's what it makes me think of. I think that's the word, carousing. You're letting loose, you're partying, you're having this, you know, you're, you're, having, you're out there having fun, no thought about God in the, in the world, and you're out there flirting with everyone, you're out there just, again, letting all your moral inhibitions drop, you're just carousing. Just the stuff that goes on in nightlife. I think that's kind of the idea. Peter says, that's not you anymore. He says drinking parties, and that's why I'm saying earlier, like these all kind of sort of overlap, but here again, it's, 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 here, here he is again warning about alcohol and, and drinking together with people. The term is literally the drinking. That's the idea. Peter is sensitive to the reality that people turn to alcohol in droves before you're in Christ. I mean, we have somebody with us. I have a family member that got delivered from that, right? And we, for years, were wondering how in the world is he ever going to get free from it? And the Lord showed us how. The new birth has power, brethren. Abominable idolatries. Abominable idolatries. 
I think, sort of as an aside, mentioning idolatry, I think the fact that he, that he is, is here talking about these people used to live worshiping idols, indulging in abominable idolatries, implies that these were probably Gentiles or non-Jews, as idolatry probably would not be the first indictment of the Jewish people. They'd be more likely labeled as hypocrites or self-righteous. But either way, Peter here is saying that abominable idolatries, that living in a way where you worship these things to manipulate your future, that's what really idols were, were for, no longer, no longer is that what you're to be doing. I mentioned Bacchus, Dionysius. This was, again, the god of wine. You can look it up. It's pretty, I mean, it's all over the Greco-Roman world. He was, he was not only depicted on the walls of kings, but also on the walls of the slaves of kings. Um, the god of wine. And, of course, you would just offer whatever, some sacrifice to him and, and perhaps find some fulfillment or joy or, or fertility or something like that. But that's the nature of idolatry. It's just it's to get your own way. It's interesting here that Peter uses the term Gentiles here. If you look back up in chapter 3, he says, For the time already passed, sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. Again, that just underscores here that these are primarily Gentiles ethnically speaking. But it's interesting that he says that here. Again, Gentiles meaning non-Jew, and most of these folks are non-Jews. So it's kind of like Peter saying, you no longer care out the desire of the Gentiles, yet you yourself are Gentiles, but you are no longer defined by your ethnic backgrounds anymore. That isn't, that's not something that, we used to say you're the Gentiles, but no longer is that a category really for Peter for these people, even though ethnically speaking they are non-Jews. So he's saying here, no longer are you identified by your ethnicity primarily. Their new identity is in Jesus. They are now distanced from these, this ethnic label because they are, as Peter says in chapter 2, chosen of God, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. In short, they're the Israel of God. They are the Israel of God. So that's verse 3. The time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and idolatries. So how are you doing with sexual immorality and how are you doing with alcohol? You know? These kinds of things, this is the stuff that should not characterize us anymore. We're no longer those that, that have to resort to these things in order to live. And Peter's going to go on to say in verse 4 and 5 that the more you live this way, the more you live not according to the lusts of men, the more they're going to be surprised and the more you'll, you'll have opportunity for folks to malign you. And I can tell you right now that the longer our church stays holding fast to the truth about human sexuality, it's only a matter of time before the pressure on us comes to conform to the world's ideas of gender and, and sexual identity and choice and all of that kind of thing. 
So whatever they're experiencing here in First Peter, we're going to probably experience here at some point. So we must hold fast, but it's important to be clear on it. So if you're someone in here who is more energized by the world's pursuits of partying and nightlife and drunkenness and letting loose, then Jesus would say you need to be set free. You're still a slave to sin. You don't feel like a slave, just like the Jews said. Hey, we're not a slave to anybody. (laughs) We've never been enslaved. Jesus said, but he who sins is a slave of sin. So if that's you, Jesus can set you free. He can give you true drink. And I'll finish with John 7. John chapter 7. Jesus says this, crying out at the feast. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is not calling you to the destitute Christian life. right? He's calling you to the fullness of life in Christ and offers you living water through faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just remind us again and again that coming to you is coming to life. And Lord, we look at the world and how they just advertisements and commercials and just rhetoric and all kind of clothing, everything just 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 screams that true life is found in all these things Peter is saying we are not to be characterized by, we are not to pursue. Lord, help us to remember that. Lord, help us to not live according to the lusts of men, but for your will. Help us to know your will. Help us to know the scriptures. And um, Lord, keep us. And Lord, for those in here who perhaps are enslaved by this, or perhaps who've just fallen into a trespass and have let their guard down, Lord, we pray that you would grant them repentance. And we pray, Lord, they'd be set free from that and restored. And, um, And begin to live soberly and alert in light of your coming. In Jesus' name. Amen.